This is Details, Please. I'm Rose Reed, and my co-host is Gail Reed, my mother. Every episode, we attempt to get to the bottom of things. For this first season, we are featuring a mini-series on our greatest musical influences. One of the biggest songs from my high school years was Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Okay, so what is it about Carly Simon that makes you think about this time? Rose, I don't think I've told you about this before, but I became even more withdrawn when I went to high school and I went from a smaller junior high into a much larger high school with about three or four times as many students. And I wasn't very active after school. I was too insecure to mingle with my peers and I would come home, spend a lot of time listening to music. And one of the things I, and talking about our early musical influences, one of them was my favorite DJ from my high school years, Jonathan Schwartz. The man who introduced me to the favorite music of my youth. Carly Simon, Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, all of those groups that have were such a big part of my life then. I remember listening to um, Jonathan Schwartz in the evenings, and Carly Simon would have been a typical artist that he would have played during that period. I had some dreams, they were clouds in my coffee, clouds in my coffee, and What a great song. Yeah, she sounds pissed, and also you really have to have a dictionary with you when you listen to it. <laughs> when Mom and I first started our mini-series dedicated to musical influences, I asked her who was at the top of her list. If she could only interview five people, who would it be? And after about five seconds, I said, my top choice would be Jonathan Schwartz. He was my favorite DJ from New York's WNEW FM, 102.7 on your dial. Jonathan started his career in radio when he was only 20 years old. That was in 1958. And he went on to become one of New York's top DJs. His career has spanned over 50 years. He is a living legacy to the evolution of radio, from the AM to FM dials to satellite radio, and now streaming and podcasting. Jonathan Schwartz has done it all and is still doing it all and DJing on WNYC-FM. Tony Bennett. Rogers and Hammerstein. Sinatra. Ella. John Pizzarella. What's not to like? Today in Jonathan Schwartz history, Jonathan drops us in on... Well, he does have a distinct style, a slow cadence, he's not afraid of long pauses, and he loves to give historical or personal context for the songs that he chooses. Here's a clip that shows how Jonathan now dedicates his programming to the great American songbook, music from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, the music of his youth, especially his all-time favorite, Mr. Frank Sinatra. Now listen, 
I have something uh, that you may never have heard. I, I would think never. Sinatra. Sinatra gave a performance in 1995. I was present. Uh, this was in Palm Desert, California. He died in 1998, in the spring of the year. Here is the song that he sang. The last song. He sang six songs. This is the last song. This is a song that lent its, its, its title to his gravestone. It's on his gravestone. The song is The Best Is Yet To Come. Out of the tree of life I just picked me a plum Jonathan's tie to music is very emotional, but it's almost a birthright. He was born in New York in 1938. His mother worked on Broadway, and his father was a composer and producer. Jonathan grew up following the Boston Red Sox, and to learn the game, he would listen to the radio. And if you wanted to listen to an entire baseball game, you had to listen to the latest thing, FM radio. So when did you first start listening to the radio, Jonathan? At a very young age, uh, I was deeply attracted to the radio, and uh, I, I found it to be uh, substantial in the extreme, and uh, I kept listening to radio, and even when television came in, I favored radio, and, and still do to this day. What do you think it was that attracted you particularly to radio more than maybe other people were? <laughs> Because it seemed uh, tremendously intimate to me, uh, mm. informative, uh, I, I, I go to the radio uh, uh, instead of television. So that was just, you know, I thought a very interesting thing that from your love of baseball, your love of radio, you, you become a very early uh, adapter uh, to, to FM radio. 1946. Uh, my father had a show, and the show was uh, playing in Boston. As it happens, the World Series was on between the St. Louis Cardinals and the Boston Red Sox, and uh, someone connected with the show was able to obtain two, two tickets. And I saw Fenway Park for the first time. I thought, well, now, this is, this is quite extraordinary. Uh, and uh, I began to study the game off the radio. Uh, and, and try to put it all together so that I understood the game. Today the Red Sox came home for the third game, home to Fenway Park for the first World Series game that field has seen in 28 years. And here are a couple of off-season pals from rival leagues. Leo DeRocher, capable manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, and Joe DiMaggio, the New York Yankees star center fielder. And up in the press box, the big league sports writers are waiting to flash the game reports to the four corners of the earth. Everything's ready. Here's the pitch, and there it goes, a long home run drive. Radio has always seemed like such a mysterious concept to me. Somewhere far away, someone speaks into a microphone, and that sound, those words or music, appear in my room. 
Someone is speaking to an audience of unknown number in the tens of thousands of people, but it feels as if the speaker is talking only to me. When I was growing up, my parents and grandparents used to tell me stories about the great radio programs of the 1930s and the 40s. And I knew intuitively that my father fell in love with big band music of the 40s listening to the radio. He was way too poor to buy records as a kid. Gosh, I never really connected those two things together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he wouldn't have had, uh, I mean, you might have had a family Victroller, but I just somehow doubt that my grandfather had one. And going back 100 years ago, when people would gather around those large radios that were as big as large television sets, they would in their offices, in their living rooms, and that's how all the news came, the immediate news, other than the paper. The transistor radio in the 50s, which was right when you were young, that was like the first time that music was mobile and you could listen to sports games or listen to the hit songs wherever you were, in your backyard, walking around your house, riding your bike. Well, discovery was really something that was limited. It depended on your environment. And for me, I was dependent on what my DJs played on the radio to find something new, which is why I love Jonathan so much. You know, it's very meaningful to hear something new that just grabs you, which is a feeling Jonathan describes so well. He has always been a lover of how a song makes him feel. I was a 13-year-old. And I was in a bar, and I was drinking uh, a, a scotch and, and a beer chaser. And I went in there uh, all the time. Uh, uh, and there was a jukebox and there was music. And, uh, and uh, quite suddenly, a, a record I know about, sung by Sinatra's The Birth of the Blues, a song that had nothing to do with me at all. However, the singing was so dramatic, so great, and so amazing to me uh, that I just fell to my knees in front of the jukebox and put in, uh, I don't know how many dimes, it was a dime at that time, I put in every dime that I'd ever seen and just played it over and over to the annoyance of the other people in the bar. So it was afternoon, and so there were very few people but the birth of the booze uh, was something astonishing to me in that bar on that day. And they made that the start of the blues. Jonathan was working in radio at WBAI in 1958 when he was just 20 years old. And by 1967, he began working at the newly public radio station WNEW 102.7 FM. Less than two decades had passed since the invention of the transistor radio, and billions were being manufactured and sold worldwide. Everyone was listening to the radio, and everyone was listening to the same handful of stations. The DJs were a big deal, and for my mom, Jonathan was the biggest deal. Jonathan was DJing and performing in New York during that time. So I'm, I'm curious if you could share just a feeling of what your um, workday was like when you were in the height of the 
folk and rock music revolution, if you will, or, uh, you know, the late 60s, 70s when you were working at WNEW, um, what was a typical workday like for you? Well, at that time, I was, I, uh, I was doing a radio program from 6 until 9 on, uh, on, on WNEW, uh, and then a car would pick me up and my pianist, Tony Monti, and uh, would take us from 42nd Street and 3rd Avenue, where the station was, up to 55th Street uh, and 3rd Avenue, and we would get out and walk uh, like an eighth of them, just an eighth of a, a yard. And there was Michael's Pub. And that's where uh, I did most of my work. Uh, many, many, many performances over a period of 11 years. To take you back to 1967, The Confessions of Nat Turner was the fiction bestseller. Bonnie and Clyde was taking the box office by storm. And the radio waves were buzzing with Jefferson Airplane and The Temptations, The Beatles, and The Supremes. Gail had just moved to a new school in a new neighborhood and was spending the majority of her time sulking in her room on the southern part of Long Island. And there ain't nothing I can do about it. I remember being aware of music and songs and listening to the radio when I was in the sixth grade. I would have been 12 years old, 1967. Flare pants? What? Like, did you wear flare pants? Oh, God. I, don't, I know I had, go, I had white go-go boots, but that would have been a little earlier than 67. A-line dresses, that much I... You have to remember, too, that we, wore, we didn't wear pants to to dress up and, and we I didn't own my first pair of jeans yet mm. I have this memory suddenly of my sixth grade graduation party I was moving from Valley Stream to Woodmere I was heartbroken over it because I had finally made friends and was popular for the first time in my life I had gone from being this overly chubby awkward girl extremely shy extremely introverted um, to someone who was one of the most popular girls in my class, and there were four of us girls that had boyfriends. Anyway, back to the graduation party. It was at Cindy Maxstein's house. She was a really sweet girl, and there was a band, and it was probably either her brother's band or a band from the street, and they were playing music uh, for the party. We were dancing, and I remember... Like dancing and like uh, doing the like swim, like that. Yes, kind of, or doing the swim, really? the monkey. Yes, <laughs> probably the soupy sails. Uh, probably some twist. We were doing all those dances. Wow! And I remember at one point the band started to play this really like the probably the biggest hit at that moment. It was June, so it was summer, which was Wipeout, which was a instrumental lead guitar type of electric guitar song so yeah so i was dancing with this boy randy sunshine he was really cute but he was short i remember that he hadn't you know had his growth spurt yet and right in the middle of the song my boyfriend harold harold schutzman stepped up picked randy up and set him aside i i swear to god that's the image i have in my mind and started dancing with me and it was it was a really touching moment 
And then when the band realized that... Because you felt like the girl of the party? I did. I did. So did you guys hang out one-on-one? Was there no, like necking behind No, we didn't. No. We didn't hang out really with boys. I mean, if we did, I don't remember. I just remember hanging out with girlfriends um, in elementary school. We might have, we probably went to parties. We probably played spin the bottle. But I have this vivid memory of this party because it was a real uh, crossroads for me moving to this new neighborhood full of unknown, which turned out to be a really challenging experience for me. Music nostalgia is a big part of Jonathan's ties to the music that he plays. And he often talks about how a song has changed his life or deeply moves him. And through the nature of his work, he got to know the musicians that he so admired, like Frank Sinatra. And how would you describe the feeling that you have when you listen to him? Well, I got to know him very well. Uh, uh, we, We somehow got together... Uh, I had heard that he had praised me somewhere it, when he was in the Arabia. He used to listen to me here, uh, and uh, he invited me out to dinner in the desert. Boy, I like go a lot, and uh, so we became uh, good friends. Uh, and also, uh, I wasn't afraid of him. Uh, so I, I, would, I would just say what was on my mind, and a lot of people around him don't do that. And uh, uh, so we had, some, we had some good talks about music. Well, I wanted to know if you had a favorite Sinatra song. Not a favorite song, but uh, there are two albums that he made uh, that are very strong. In the wee small hours is one, and only the lonely is the other. And the two wonderful swinging albums, songs for swinging lovers and swinging affairs. So I would put his finest work into those four titles. I was interested uh, in the music. If it, uh, I wasn't interested at all in the, in the film, but, uh, but I, I was, uh, uh, you know, deeply embedded in the music that he. When Jonathan plays music of someone that he knows or he spends time with, he'll often share an anecdote about them, like summering with Carly Simon or his conversations with Frank Sinatra, or in the case of Tony Bennett. Jonathan was once backstage at the Apollo Theater, where he witnessed a very intimate interaction between Tony and another man. At one point, everything's, you know, no, nothing was going on. Everything was quiet. So people wandering around. I, I, I was backstage in the wings, but I saw a big fat guy approach Tony, who was uh, in the auditorium, with a big smile on his face and his arms wide, anticipating a hug. Bennett stood and embraced the guy with a big, effulgent smile attached to the skin of his face, of his face, rather. And uh, they, uh, they held each other, and the guy talked to, to Tony, just talked to him and talked to him. Tony laughed, 
And uh, it must have gone on for ten minutes. Finally, a final embrace. And Tony made his way up on stage and uh, towards, the, uh, towards the wings and backstage where I had been standing watching this. And I said to Tony, who was that? Who's that? And Bennett said, I have no idea. Jonathan's love and dedication to this era of music is a living example of the close and often complicated web of relationships across the music industry. For example, when Tony Bennett was on Jimmy Fallon's show, he told a story about how Frank Sinatra was such a good friend to him and helped him overcome what Bennett described as a crippling stage fright. I was just troubled about, I felt nervous about an audience. And he taught me that the audience are your friends. They come to see you. And he changed my whole psychology about, there's no such thing as a bad audience. There's a bad performance, but there's not a bad audience. The, the music of the American songbook is, is, is essentially what, what I present. But every now and then, You'll, you'll hear us, even a record by the Rolling Stones. And I've heard you play a Joni Mitchell sure. um, song or two. And, uh, you know, being that those, that those are the musicians of my youth, I, I'm always, I feel particularly pleased to hear you sneak one of those in. Well, um, I don't have to sneak them, I'll just play them. You know? <laughs> what I love so much is that I do think that this is Rose. The, the, some of the songs, like the great, that you play from the Great American Songbook, like, you know, from Frank Sinatra and the big band, um, to me, they seem kind of almost frozen in time. It really brings these people to life, and it adds, it almost, for me, it adds technicolor to a black and white photograph. Uh-huh. Good. Um, Who are you calling from? Atlanta, Georgia, and New York City, both. Rose is in Brooklyn, and I'm in Atlanta. I see. Mm-hmm. I, I went to Boston as a college girl and uh, fell in love with an Atlantan, a, a sixth-generation Georgian, and have been in Georgia since 1977. I see. Uh, that's why your, so, your show makes her so nostalgic. Oh, uh, well, that's, that's <laughs> very nice. Very nice to, that, that, that that's the case. I've got you under my skin. What struck me the most was how, in spite of the fact that he was someone I associate with the music of my youth, he's so connected to the music of his youth. And now that he is older and choosing the era he wants to listen to in, in terms of musical taste, he's choosing to go back to the music of his youth and play songs from the 30s and the 40s that remind him of his childhood, his adolescence, his mother and father. And I find that 
very touching and very meaningful in a world today where so many other people around us and the culture in general is so focused on what's happening right now and what's happening next. What's the new thing? You don't think it's sad reaching back into the past? No, I don't think it's sad at all. I think that we can't really appreciate all the things that happen to us and the people that are a part of our lives in the moment. I think human nature is to maybe not necessarily focus on the negative, but to allow the negative to cloud the positive. I just think that is an essence of human nature. And there's something really sweet about the fact that when you look at something in hindsight, you realize what you really see is the beauty of it. And to surround yourself with things that remind you of a past time in a nostalgic way really makes a lot of sense. To you? To me, yeah. And I think the lesson that we have to learn from Jonathan Schwartz is the music of our youth brings us such comfort. Why not play it every day? You can still get a transistor radio on eBay or Radio Shack, or if you leave us a review on iTunes in the next week, Mom and I will send you one. You can hear the Jonathan channel on WNYC every day at 12 p.m. and most weeknights at 7 p.m. and on the weekends at 8 p.m. or anytime on his podcast. Rose and I want to thank you for listening to Details, Please, and to being a part of our first season where we focused on early musical influences. Our new and upcoming series will be focusing on conversations about milestone moments, and we hope very much that you will join us for those. This episode was produced by myself and edited by Gail Reed. Dara Hirsch scored and mixed this episode. Music featured in this episode is from Carly Simon, Frank Sinatra, The Supremes, and Tony Bennett and Amy Winehouse. Clips featured from the 1946 World Series baseball game, Jimmy Fallon's Tonight Show, and The Jonathan Channel. We want to say a very special thank you to Jonathan Schwartz and his WNYC team, especially his producer Michael Schaub, and thanks to Emily Kennedy. We hope this mini-series dedicated to our early musical influences inspired you to listen to the music of your youth. And here's one more that mom wanted to play from her youth, Joni Mitchell's Woodstock. This is a Rose Reed production.